Hello, and welcome to the CDI podcast. I'm Dylan Edgel, Assistant Director of the University of Central Arkansas Center for Community and Economic Development. Our guest today comes to us from Pensacola, Florida. Quint Studer is founder of Pensacola's Studer Community Institute, a nonprofit organization founded on improving the community's quality of life and moving Escambia and Santa Rosa counties forward. He is a businessman, a visionary, an entrepreneur, and a mentor to many. He currently serves as entrepreneur in residence at the University of West Florida. Quinn has given his life to designing the building blocks for people and organizations that guide them to achieving and sustaining high performance. In 2000, he founded a consulting firm designed to help organizations improve results. Over the years, it won multiple awards, including the 2010 Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award. And by the time the firm was sold in 2015, it had 250 employees. We recently invited Quint to our CDI book club to discuss his book, Building a Vibrant Community, How Citizen-Powered Change is Reshaping America, and how the lessons learned from the book apply to our communities here in Arkansas and across the Mid-South. Today, we're excited to have him on the podcast to continue that conversation. Quint, welcome to the CDI podcast. Well, thank you, Dylan. You know, I'm sitting here, first of all, because of my work in healthcare. I know so many Arkansas healthcare systems. And the other thing that hits me is Pensacola is so, so familiar to many of the communities in Arkansas. In fact, I was lucky enough to go to the Heartland Summit um, that the Waltons put on. They invited 300 people there. But, you know, if you look at it, we're filled with small and mid-market cities that over the years have done their very, very best. But we always have struggled to keep talent home because talent is sort of exited to big cities. And um, I know the Heartland Summit, the whole goal was, how do you create uh, places where people want to stay who were here, and then people want to come back to who used to be here and get some new talent? So there's just so, we're so much more alike um, to the the cities that I work with, which I just was on the phone with Hot Springs yesterday, um, for example. Um, So I think our our small and mid-market cities just, just we're all in this thing together. It's, it's how do you create the type of place that gets talent? Because what I've always learned is capital follows talent, so and talent follows place. And I love your job title because it it's, it ties both of them together. You know, you can't have a great community without good economic development, but you can't have good economic development without community. So I'm just thrilled to be with you. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much. And to start us off, can you talk, tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, and I was a special education teacher, and I got interviewed yesterday on this whole topic, and how do you go from special ed teacher to what you do? But you know, it's really cool, because in special ed, you, you have a great passion for optimizing people's lives. You diagnose the child, you set lofty goals, you work as a team, and you come up with tools and techniques to move the child's learning along. From there, I moved very close. It seems like it isn't, but it really is. I got into behavioral medicine because as a special ed teacher, you do a lot of behavioral modification, behavioral techniques. So I I got into working for a behavioral medicine company. They had a place in Wisconsin where I was a teacher, and I did that. And then because um, we would do um, supervisor training for people like, you know, with employees that seem to be struggling, and, you know, so then I got to know human resource people. And one of them was at one of the hospitals in Wisconsin, Mercy. And she said, we have a job, a director of marketing. So I went there 
And, you know, was there long enough that I became senior vice president, eventually the hospital. And we, we did some good things. And then I got recruited to Chicago to be the chief operating officer of a hospital, which was my big learning curve. Cause I had never been in an, even though I grew up on the west side of Chicago, I had never been in a place that spoke 14 languages. 30% of the babies were drug positive. Um, it was, our payer mix was poor and poor. And it was, a, we, you had to be really creative. And due to a whole bunch of us, we ended up winning an award as one of the top hospitals in the country. And it sort of got a lot of interest. With that, a hospital from Pensacola benchmarked us, you know, came to Chicago to see what we were doing because we got a lot of publicity. And then they offered me to be president of the hospital down here. So I used some of those same tools and techniques of how to create better places for employees and so on. And um, we, again, had a lot of success. A company called Healthcare Advisory Board wrote some research and said two hospitals that seem to get it are Holy Cross in Chicago and Baptist in Pensacola, and I've been at both. So hospitals started benchmarking us again. And eventually, um, I had to decide, do I stay as president of a hospital or do I start my own company? And it's, it was pretty hard. I'm 48 years old. I've always been, you know, special ed teachers don't get fired. Even in healthcare, you don't get fired too much. You got to be really bad. And um, all of a sudden, I'm at this, you know, I went from an entrepreneur to an entrepreneur. My wife and I, when we did it, took all our money out of our bank account, which was $60,000, had $15,000 booked, started my own company. Um, and, you know, it sounds crazy. Part of it is I felt if I failed, I could still at least get a job in healthcare again. I had a decent reputation, started my company, the Studer Group, and um, it ended up being wildly successful, worked with many hospitals in Arkansas. And then um, as I got going, I, I just sort of started working on our own community. We're going to talk about that in a second. And in 2012, sold part of my company. In 2015, sold the entire part. And what I call myself truly is a community volunteer. And that's what that's what I do. Even when we go to other cities, I never take any money. I, we charge because we have staff that get paid. But I haven't taken a paycheck since 2015. I'm fortunate enough. I take this is so hard, such hard work that at my age, I better do it for passion because it was for money. I don't think I, I do it. Uh, and uh, kind of pivoting, we, we talked about your book in our CDI book club, uh, Building a Vibrant Community. And for those who have not read it, you kind of go over Pensacola's story of revitalization uh, and then go into the specific um, techniques that you guys used uh, that could be replicated in other communities. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with Pensacola's story, can you kind of uh, give us the broad strokes uh, of what you guys did in Pensacola? Yeah, I think it's really hard anytime you're in a community because the hardest part is to see your own community objectively, sort of like seeing your own kids objectively at times, you know, and, um, and, and so what happened in, in Pensacola, uh, Pensacola, um, you know, a lot of people see it and it, it's a town that's got about 54,000 and the county might have about 300,000. Um, it's always been a poor city, a poor community. And, you know, people will say to me when I speak, I'll talk about Escambia County being like the second poorest county in Florida. And they'd say, oh, I don't think so. I've been there. It's beautiful. I said, well, were you at Pensacola Beach or were you in Pensacola? Well, I was at Pensacola Beach. Right. You, you drive a bridge. We, we created a whole highway system so you don't have to get off. We were one of the only cities where our visitor center was on the way out of town, not on the way into town. 
and, and then you go into Gulf Breeze and then you go into Pensacola Beach. And it does have beautiful white sands. The blue, the blue angels are based here. So there's some very nice attributes. I think we got a little bit too hung up on we're historic. You know, we're an old, old city. And, and that's nice, but that's not going to feed people and that's not going to attract you. Young people aren't going to move to a community because it has a lot of history, unless that history does something for them. So I, I, I would travel other communities. And in 2004 or five, Jim Clifton, a Gallup, contacted me because he was interested in our work at the student group because they work with hospitals. And as I sit down with him, Dylan, he just happened to mention they had just done the largest study on why do some communities thrive and some don't. And I just got curious. I'm a curious, I, I, one of my attributes is curiosity. And I said, gee, what'd you learn? And he sort of shared with me and I said, can I have a copy of your research? So he gave me a copy of their research that years later was most of it published in a book called The Coming Jobs War. But back then it was more, what makes a great downtown? What makes a great community? And he mentioned three things. They spend a lot of time figuring out who currently locally has private, has jobs and brings revenue into the city. That's the most valuable communities. And are you loving them? So we spend so much time trying to recruit people that aren't in our communities. We miss paying attention to those that are in our communities. Number two is how do you grow entrepreneurs? Because he said, um, you got to grow your entrepreneurs. You've got to have a system to help them grow, whether it's through money, through space, through mentoring. And the third thing that really caught my eye is he said, you got to keep your talent home. And he said, and if you got to keep your talent home, they want a vibrant, cool place to hang out. So you've got to have a great downtown. And I, I, people you know, sort of call me the downtown guy. And I said, I just want to keep talent home. If they would have told me the way to keep talent home is create a whole bunch of chain restaurants on the interstate, I would have went for it. And, and he said, you need to have a downtown that's programmed, uh, purposely programmed, both in social activities, but also even what goes where. You have to have a, a place that has a lot of um, entertainment, retail, you know, places to shop, eat, and enjoy and get entertained. He said, you need to have some cool office space. Just because you got empty office space doesn't mean you don't need more office space and you need to have places to live. And I got intrigued by that. I actually brought him to Pensacola then to tour with me. And um, so then I went on this journey. So Dylan, my job was to travel. So I was in all these cities. So I'd go to Asheville, I'd go to Savannah, I'd go to Portland, Maine. I'd even go to, to Beloit, Wisconsin that started doing some things, Omaha, Nebraska. And I kept going to these places and learning and learning because I was speaking in a lot of them. And then we came back and just sort of got lucky. Um, we started sort of working the plan. I brought in a guy named Ray Gindros from Urban Design in Pittsburgh. And he added to our education because he's the one that told me about logistics, about streets, about walkability, about slowing down traffic, about having great intersection. So as you know, we just started, I call it now small ball. We, we sort of just tried to do a circle here, a circle here, a circle here. And then all of a sudden, after about 10 years, all those circles sort of add up and people say, this is a pretty cool place. And I wouldn't have written the book if we didn't have some real statistics that, you know, our assessed property value up 34%. And in Florida, you can't just raise taxes. So that means we had a lot more new construction and rehabilitation. Um, new investment went up over 
Um, our Verizon named us the 17th best place to start a business. The American Planning Board said we're one of the 10 best downtown streets in America, which was nice. Strong Towns named us the strongest town in 2019. Um, and then we also, have, I think it's been really key, besides our dashboard that my not-for-profits are doing, we also every year have Mason Dixon come in and do a quality of life survey. So it's non-anecdotal. So we know that we went from 23% of our people thinking we're moving in the right direction to over 60%. So we, I'm a big believer in objective data because I wouldn't have written a book if it was just a whole bunch of anecdotal stories, which I like, but hey, show me the, show me the data. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this uh, just now about the the one uh, intersect the one great intersection, right? Yeah. I mean, I really like that idea of kind of focusing uh, in one spot and then kind of building out from there. So, uh, for those communities who are starting the revitalization effort uh, in their downtown, can you talk about the the process of starting with that one great intersection? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I didn't even know what the intersection should be. I was driving around with Ray Gindros, and he just said every community has a great intersection. And I said, okay, where should our great intersection be? So if you know our town, we have this thing called Palafox, which is like our main drag. And we have this main street, and then we have Garden Street. And if you looked at Garden Street, it seemed a little busier because we had this big federal courthouse on one side and Mason Lodge on another side and a big office building on another side. But we also have a big median strip that goes through there. And he said, nah, you got a median strip, it's the traffic's too fast, it's Palafox and Maine. Now, let me explain, Dylan, what Palafox, that's why you need outside help. You know, I think when I go in a community, like somebody did for me, I can spot things for them that they can't even spot themselves because you get used to it. So in our community, he said Palafox and Maine. Let me explain what was there. Two empty lots and two buildings that had been empty, I mean, for decades for decades. In fact, I think when people drove by there, they would just say, go to that go to that building with the for sale sign and take a right. Go to that building. I mean, we just stopped and see they're for sale. So we got curious. So we then bought one of the buildings. And, and I think I talk to people all the time. You, you need what I call impact investors. It's people in your community. In my book, you know, I talk about getting wealth off the sidelines. And when I go to community, I always talk to wealthy people and they're willing to invest, but they don't want to lose money, but they don't want to be a philanthropy check. So we, we, and I also learned this in Asheville, what don't you have? Well, we, we heard that you need to have a coffee shop downtown. And my wife happens to like olive oil. And so we created this coffee shop cafe with olive oil. Then we have this upstairs. What do you do with an upstairs? We learned this from Charleston. We put a kitchen in there for like cooking. All we do is go to other cities, find cool stuff and say, well, let's put, let's wiggle it here. She loves Italy in New York. If you've ever been there. So this was like a mini, 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 mini Italy sort of with some food, some kitchen utensils, um, place you can buy coffee, stuff you can get some food. You can buy olive oil. And, and then as she sat there, we looked, and then, and then we had some empty spot, and it was really cool. We had about 750 feet of extra space. And in the book, it talks about the business challenge. So we decided to give, have a business challenge, do a business plan. So we were blown away when we had over 100 people show up. You won $25,000 in cash, 
and three years worth of reduced rent. We ended up having 33 complete business plans. They had to go through the whole small business development center. We ended up picking one and she's still there. But we also realized we had a lot of young young people. And, and what's really neat is, you know, if you look for a franchise, they want a quarter of a million dollars. Well, you got all this young entrepreneurship. They just need some space and a little bit of break sometimes. So then my wife looked across the street at this other empty building and said, you know, I don't want my customers looking at that thing. So, so we bought that. We created six other retail spaces and um, those rented out. And then we, on the corners, there was a, an existing restaurant, an existing men's clothing store and woman. And all of a sudden, you had some humming. So you got two out of four corners humming. Next thing you know, this other corner was somebody else came in and created sort of, um, you know, trailers like with a roof over them where you can go and get, you know, tacos and stuff like that. If you've ever been to Seaside, it's a little Seaside type look. And then probably where we didn't get it all we wanted um, somebody then took that other empty lot, put a bank there. But the good news is they really didn't throw a bunch of drive-through things to kill you in a bank. But then they did move their headquarters with about 30 to 40 employees to the second floor. And then all of a sudden it was interesting because then, you know, you just start moving down the street. All of a sudden, okay, well then this space that's next to this becomes a Ruby's um, restaurant and then this event space starts clicking and then um, um, Holiday Inn says, hey, we wouldn't mind having a hotel downtown, but it's got to be really close to that corner. They actually said it needed to be within a half a block of that intersection for it to work. And then it was just like, it just started work. Then a guy started, you know, a world of beer and a pizza place. And it just sort of started moving, moving down. And it's been really exciting to see because, you know, if we all know people don't want to walk forever and that's where in a downtown, you've got to close your gaps. Nobody wants, to, and I, I see what happens in downtowns is you have these entrepreneurs, Dylan, but they're too spread out. So they're a block apart and people don't want that. So the other thing I think cities really have to do sometimes is look at your empty buildings and figure out how you're going to get control of them in some way and what's really hard, Dylan, is people don't want to overpay because that person hasn't fixed up that property. They're sitting on it, waiting to make money. And gosh darn it, we're not going to let them make money when they've done nothing. I call it sometimes you just got to hold your nose, overpay, because you can't let that block the whole entire community from moving forward. That's, that's, that's great advice. And it's obviously worked really well for you guys. Um, and I kind of wanted to also ask about, uh, you know, in, in community and economic development, we're kind of in the business of, of change. Uh, and change can be really hard for a lot of people, positive and negative change. Um, in the last chapter of your book, you talk a little bit about this, uh, but can you talk about what citizens and community leaders can do to um, start changing the conversation in their own communities? There's a number of things, you know, and since the book came out, I've even learned a lot more. I, I, think, I was on the um, curriculum committee the Harvard Business School. And it's pretty interesting because we said the number one skill set a leader needs is change. So if I go to community and ask people, elected officials, how many of you have ever taken a course on change? How many of you have gone to a workshop on change? They, they are going to say they read a book on change. I'm not sure how, what the book was, but um, you still don't have consistency. So one of the things we do is you've got to, you know, change is like, you know, you know, sort of like, I like change, you go first type philosophy. And I think there's some, 
so messaging is really important. So for example, what's the burning platform? You know, we, we found out the burning platform isn't, um, you know, let, let's start entrepreneurship. Sure, it makes sense, but that's for a few. But is that the burning platform or let's revitalize downtown? Oh, come on. We put bricks in and some new street lights eight years ago. It didn't work. We did a main street thing 10 years ago. That didn't work. Our, the burning platform has to grab people so they're willing to go through discomfort. And so every city has to have their own burning platform. For ours, it was our goal is to keep our young people home, get our young people back and attract those young people that they might know. And once you say that, people go, oh, I can support that. I'll, I'll go into community and I'll ask them when I do a community workshop, how many of you have had adult children? And a lot of hands go up. I say, how many of you have adult children that live elsewhere? The same hands go up. So, so I think with change, we, we go through the process. You're going to have four types of people in change. And I think this is really vital. You have that group that, you know, Dylan, you have a meeting. They're all there. They're all gung-ho. They're with you. They're just, and they've led everything. You wonder why they're still doing it, but they still show up every time. And that might be 25% of the people. You, you need to hold them. Then you get another 25% that because that other 25% is with you and they sort of like them, they're friends with them. They want, you got to give them one or two reasons, but they're ready to lean and be helpful. That's 50%. Then you got another 25%. They're going to literally, I don't care what you say, it's the answer is no. And I make in my research, what we do is we city spend too much time trying to change the unchangeable, try to make the unwilling willing. So we waste energy and oxygen on people that are only going to sabotage what we're doing. So I, I come up with techniques. You never want to be impolite, but let's not put them on committees. Let's not pat them on the back. You know, th th they need to be left behind because they, they're an anchor to the, to the community right now. And then you've got another 25% that, that's probably leaning against you and you might get a few over. My goal is to keep that 50% with you and get a few of the others and move forward. In my book, I call it consent versus consensus. So many projects, Dylan, in your background, you know, we've made consensus decisions that have hurt the community because we don't put the building where it really should go. So we, we do some compromise. I, I talk about the two cities that are 10 miles apart and they had to figure out where to put the technical school. So they put it right in the middle so no one could get to it. You know, but that was their, their compromise type deal. Um, and I think you can learn a lot from Joe Riley at Charleston, where he really took real strong viewpoints on certain things need to be in certain locations. So I think understanding change and then understanding that some of the people you think should be most supportive might get a little scared. Hey, I've always been a community leader. And all of a sudden, this younger generation starting to take over. All of a sudden, there's new people at the table. And I used to be able to call the city council and get the deal. Or my God, they're going to do market research now in an RFP? Well, that's going to take away my little deal where I used to be able to get contracts pretty easy. So once you get transparent and you lay it out there, and I also talk about probably the thing that people like the most is every change effort hits a wall. Everyone. And I talk about the Chuck Yeager impact on change, that the place starts shaking. And if you don't keep the throttle down, so I always encourage, I show the video, about a three and a half minute video from the right stuff of Chuck, the Chuck, guy playing Chuck Yeager, where the plane shakes and he keeps the throttle down. So normally when I leave a community, one of the things they talk about is 
we've got to keep the throttle down. Even when we hit turbulence, we can't get so scared we don't go forward. You got to keep the throttle down. So I think change, understanding change, understanding pushback is normal, is vital. And I think that's what trips us, our communities up. When we, we, we start hitting natural turbulence, we stop instead of realizing that actually means we're making progress. When we start getting turbulence, it's because people actually think, oh my gosh, they might actually pull it off this time. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Really great advice to kind of keep the throttle down. Uh, I love that. Um, and then finally, just to pivot a little bit to uh, kind of natural disasters. So, so we're kind of seeing a lot of uh, you know, wildfires in California. Uh, in 2019, Arkansas had uh, some major flooding. Um, and in your book, you talk about how Hurricane Ivan came through. Um, and it destroyed a lot of Pensacola, but it also presented an opportunity for you guys uh, to kind of build back in a new way. Um, so I wanted to ask you about how communities can um, prepare themselves for natural disasters um, and, and kind of move forward in, in an innovative way. Well, I'm going to really, I'm going to go now backwards with you because I think some of the times we could prevent some things we don't prevent. You know, one thing I've learned, we do this thing called Civicon, Dylan, and I didn't talk about a lot in the book. It's where we started bringing in all these outside experts. And, and now they're on, and I, I hope your people watch it. Um, we bring in these unbelievable, like you've heard of them, the Donald Shoops, the Jeff Specks, the um, Tom Murphys, the Ed McMahons, the Joe um, from Charleston, the mayor of Charleston. We just bring these unbelievably smart people in. Probably the smartest, one of the smartest people brought in was Gina Worth, who's a landscape architect from New York. And she talked about water resiliency. We looked back and we said, geez, I wish you would have been here like 10 years ago because we could have made some much better decisions on stormwater. So part of it is raising the civic IQ. Not that you can prevent a crisis, but I mean, manish God, we got to get ourselves more educated, you know, on, on what, what we're doing. We, we covered up some natural stormwater things. We just covered them up instead of sunlighting them. So I, I think there's preventative stuff. The, the second thing is, you know, af after any type of thing, we just had one with Sally. You talk about, first of all, what did we do well? You know, there's always, what did we do wrong? I, I know the people here at the county. And I said, before you beat up on what didn't go right, at least spend some time on what you did go right. Now for us, Hurricane Ivan, just basically all of a sudden things, we, the poverty became more evident. You know, we lost a lot of trees that were hiding a lot of poverty. The homes that should have probably weren't even built to code in the first place, but had grandfathered in, they're gone. So when you, you have a tragedy, it sort of forces you to look at your, your weaknesses as well as your strengths. But like we have to do stormwater better. And, and you have to get people to understand, you know, we built a stadium by the water. People said, what nut jobs? Why would you build a stadium by the water? Well, let me explain why. It's a natural stormwater pond during a hurricane because this water goes in and they go into where the, the whole field is and it becomes probably the best stormwater, the, you know, retention pond you possibly have and it's man-made, but you don't think like that. So I, I think it, it forces you to wake up and see what you have. It's sort of like I'm a big person in kindergarten readiness. Well, all the, we didn't know what our kindergarten readiness was. I mean, we did, nobody paid attention to it. Then we saw it. And, and sometimes you have to turn the light on 
natural disasters turn the light on things that you should have been doing better with infrastructure, things you should have been willing to go to, to pull together. The other thing a, a tragedy does is all of a sudden territories go away. I saw this in hospitals. You know, a, a, a terrible accident comes and all these people rush to the ER. Next thing you know, the ER is working good together. The OR is working good together. We, we did really good under tragedy now. The problem is when the tragedy's gone, we're all fighting again. So how do you learn? Because look at, we pull together. It's not about who's winning, who's losing, not who's looking good. And I think we can learn a lot about teamwork, collaboration, and cooperation. Um, and for us, it just turned on the light of, wow, we got buildings that aren't strong. We got huge stormwater issues in our community. And we just weren't prepared, but you can be prepared. And that's why I love this Civicon. You bring people in and they talk about what can you do to be prepared, not only for tragedies, but there's a storm that's tragic, but so is a tragedy having an intersection that can kill people because it's too wide. So I think Hurricane Ivan um, got a lot of people at the table that normally weren't at the table. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, and I love the kind of growth mindset um, that you and your community had to, to kind of turn that tragedy into uh, opportunities for your community to grow in new ways. Quint, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. In addition to building a vibrant community, Quinn has authored 10 books, including Results That Last, which reached number seven on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. You can hear more from Quinn himself on his podcast, The Busy Leaders Podcast, where he speaks with entrepreneurs, leadership gurus, and community builders on how they're tackling the biggest challenges of our time. And finally, you can go to quintstuder.com to stay up to date on his latest podcasts, books, and events. Well, let me say one thing as I close. You know, when I first started moving into healthcare, some of the first hospitals that reached out were in Arkansas. Some of the first hospitals that reached out to me early 2000s about how do we improve quality, how do we make our place was Arkansas. When I came to Baptist Hospital, the first three hospitals that benchmarked us were from Arkansas. So it doesn't surprise even things like vibrant communities, how to create better places. Arkansas is sort of a leader because I think Arkansas has always been one of these that likes to control their own destiny and has great confidence in themselves and truly loves what they represent. So I'm very excited, again, um, about what I see happening in Arkansas, the way the communities are stepping up. But it doesn't surprise me because I think Arkansas has truly always been a leader in so many good ways. I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I love my state. I was born here, uh, and I can attest to that uh, kind of independent and, and confident mindset that we have. Uh, so I love that. Uh, on upcoming episodes, the CDI podcast will feature CDI graduates and participants, community partners, and community and economic development experts from across Arkansas and the Mid-South. We hope you join us next week on the CDI podcast.